1: Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. I'm Will Mallard, delighted to have Kwesi Mon. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Will. So Kwesi, we, we might kick off uh, the show. How can someone get hold of you firstly? What, what's the best way? Well,
2: these days, probably the best way is to go on the internet, the interweb as we used to call it. I'm old, you see. And go to www.slowmoneyclub.com and you can contact me there.
1: Fantastic, so Uh, slowmoneyclub.com. That's not all that you're involved with, but uh, tell us a little bit about that, and and then we'll get a a bit into the backstory.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, Slow Money is an initiative that I started, What must be like 2016 now, 2015, 2016. And it's a platform basically where back then I was just starting to get into property and at the time as i am i do lots of research lots of analysis and just lots of work um so as i was doing that one of my friends a few of my friends actually as i was sending them random stuff on whatsapp and they were getting overwhelmed they say, they said to me like you know oh you should you should put this on a website or something or you should put this together um similarly other people were like oh you should i had lots of people good people in my network that i was leveraging using their knowledge to kind of build my own and then sharing with my other friends. And I'd be like, Oh, did you know this? You know, you could do this in property. You know, you could do that. And they would say, why don't you, this was back in 2015 when nobody knew the word, but they were saying, why don't you start a podcast? So I created the website back then it was probably easier to create a website and have a podcast on there than to now there's all these platforms, Anchor, Libsyn that you can syndicate through. Back then it was easier to have your own website and create your own podcast and have your own platform and that was what slow money club was just a platform to share the information i was gathering through all of the people in my network regarding building wealth the philosophy through my reading and studying from people like robert kiyosaki um other people lots of people like warren buffett but the the premise is around the slow and steady path to building wealth so you know being being a banker i could talk about many different ways people build wealth but the way that i was gravitating towards for my own strategy my own personal kind of wealth building strategy was to go for something more slow more steady more sustainable over the long term and that's how slow money came about basically
1: so slow money.com uh ch- slow check money. it out slow money, money club.com Club. indeed okay <laughs> Um, and briefly, um, you, you might want to share uh, a, a little bit about your um, your other career as a banker. Um, and then we can go back to the, the beginning of the story. Yeah, I mean,
2: so yeah, I guess at some point we'll talk about the, the other careers in property as well. but the the career, the day job that I've done is in banking. so had many roles actually. and look back now. The good thing about doing this type of podcast is I get the opportunity to look back, which people like you, you know, we're always thinking about what to do next, what to do next. But let me reflect now. So I've been in banking. Um, I joined out of uni. I studied engineering in uni and I didn't really want to be an engineer because at the time they didn't get paid much, probably still don't. And I didn't know anything about finance or banking, but I reasoned that that's where the money was and I needed money so you know let's go there (laughs) and I've been fortunate and lucky enough I started my career in 2007 within six weeks of my starting in banking we had something called the global financial crisis kicking off so (laughs) I think within my first three months we had things like Lehman Brothers going bust Northern Rock going bust and the great financial crisis beginning. It lasted years, but that was September, I think. I started my career September the 7th, 2007. September the 17th, sorry, 2007. And so you can look back on that day and see everything that happened in the world post that point. And I was kind of just learning and trying to figure out what the hell is banking. But that was a great experience for me. I've been fortunate because at that time, I thought that it was a short-term thing because nobody even knew the banking sector would still exist every day I'd go to work and there'd be headlines on the, on the front of the standard or the Financial Times about the collapse of the banking system. And, you know, companies going bust that have been around for hundreds of years. So uh, early in my career, 2000,
1: 2008. I it was quite that, a uh, traumatic time. And uh, how did you feel as a, a young professional uh, just starting out your career? I mean, I think not, me
2: and other people from that kind of millennial generation had the same thing, which was, career was almost temporary at that point it was I knew people I I joined banking this is a story I, I when I joined there was a period when I was working for a company called Goldman Sachs working in trade support as an analyst and I was very junior obviously there was really senior people who were earning a lot of money money that I would never see in my life but they were also really painful to work with some of them especially so But I remember, for example, there was a period when I'd go into the office, I used to work from like 7 a.m. till 8 p.m., with about 15 minutes for lunch, so it was really intense. But I'd go into the office, and one particular case, I was having a conversation with this banker, trader, who was a bit of a not very nice person. And he was putting me under all this pressure, all this stress. Eventually, I ended up leaving it was probably like nine o'clock in the evening. Went home, stress, pressure, barely slept. I thought, let me get in early the next day before him, so I could do the stuff. Got in early the next day, logged into the system, did what I had to do for him, went to email him, and he wasn't in the system. He was gone from the computer system. There was no record of him because he'd been let go. And that made me think: this is someone who generates a lot of revenue for the company. You know, he was. Yeah, An who, important
1: person as you you viewed it uh, within the, the company. More important than me who had just come through the door.
2: So he's generating seven figure revenue for the business. And I'm not even in a revenue generating function, I'm just supporting. And so he, if they, if he's that dispensable to them, what am I? And then you people who had been there for 20, 30, 30 years, MDs, they were just let go. I think what that did for us psychologically is that it, I already, I already had the intention, to be honest, that I wanted to go in there and learn as much as I can, because companies like Goldman Sachs or whoever, they were the best in class at many things. And I can take that elsewhere build my own business, do my own thing, and just use that as a platform. This is something that years later I read about, actually, in Robert, one of Robert Kiyosaki's books, where he talked about using your employer as your mentor. And I realized that that's basically what I had done back then, of how I perceived it. How can I use this business, their processes, their systems? How can I learn from what they've put in place? Technology, the people, hiring, all of this stuff you can learn.
1: One thing that uh, would strike almost anyone that's uh, spent any time listening to you um, would be that you're one of the more inquisitive uh, minds out there. What, What do you think that comes from? That's a great question. I think, I don't
2: know, actually, I am I am very inquisitive. I, people have said that, but I have this, I think, I think, to be honest, a lot of people who I respect and envy in the world. It's okay
1: like, to say you're just nosy.
2: Yeah, they, they are. They have this natural inquisitiveness and they want to know everything. Like early on, pre-starting recording this, we had a brief conversation. I could have spoken to you for two hours, just inquiring about what you're doing, what your background is, the business, the, you know, I think it's a natural thing that some people have and some people don't. But... I'm just inquisitive. You know, it could be anything. I spent last night, I was, I was up to 2 a.m. doing stuff about AI. I don't know how much you're into AI. I'm sure everybody's heard of Chat GPT by now, but I don't know if people have looked at GPT four, what GPT four can do. But actually, GPT is just the tip of the iceberg. This is what I always say to people. That's the public face, that's the Google of AI world. Then there's all the stuff underneath it. And, and so yeah, I'm just naturally inquisitive and. And also, I like to cross-apply things. So I'll take something that I've learned in finance and I'll apply it to property. I'll take something that I found in property and apply it to finance. And I'm always trying to think ahead about what, what does the horizon look like? What's in the future? And how do I position myself for that? But yeah, I think those are just natural traits that I've developed over the years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and let, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, where, where did you grow up? What was the um, what was primary school like? Um, t- t- tell us a bit about the early years. Sure, I mean the early years were fun and exciting,
2: if not um, the most affluent. I grew up in northwest London in a place called. Uh, it was a council estate. I know you're from New Zealand, so I don't know how familiar you are. You've Been here long enough, but I'm sure you are. But just for your listeners, the council estate is sort of social housing here in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. My parents came over in the eighties from a country called Ghana in West Africa. And they actually, like most, like a lot of um, Africans, especially West Africans in the late 70s, 80s, they came here to study. Unfortunately for them, something happened, which was called me, and they ended up having to give up most of their studies to raise a young human being. So I grew up um, in, in a really loving and caring home and, you know, my parents built on that kind of inquisitiveness that I've always had and nurtured that a lot.
1: And and that, that's like, re, re, really interesting, because the other other sort of uh, thing that comes to mind when I think of you is um, being emotionally uh, fairly, fairly secure. Uh, you, you, you're a relatively calm person. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if my wife would agree with that, but I try to be. I think that's probably a <laughs> I get from my
2: dad. Um, but. You know, my like I I, and I so I grew up on a council estate where it wasn't very secure, where you know, like the emotional state of lots of people in that environment was very erratic. And but I I was very lucky that I had this this home environment that was very safe, very secure, parents who would do everything that they could to provide for me. But also, I think in that environment, one of the things when you talk about security, actually, this is a point I made in a separate conversation, but. I used to be in an environment where there were lots of people doing bad things, lots of what we call it was, it was we call it the trap. It was the trap where people were selling drugs, people were coming out of jail. Lots of my friends, they aspired to be like their older brothers or cousins who were either selling drugs or doing stuff whatever they could to raise money to support themselves. But I came from, I was in that environment, but I came from a different environment. Being from West Africa, lots of people in that environment were maybe Caribbean and second generation in the UK, whereas I was first generation West African. And my parents came here to study. Lots of these second generation's parents came here to work as economic migrants on board the Windrush and other things that came over. So there was this kind of dichotomy in that I was in this environment, but I, I always felt within myself that I would not be here for long. And so many ways, I enjoyed it because it was like, I'm going to enjoy myself here because eventually I'll be outside this environment anyway. And yeah, so I did get myself into some trouble. But at the same time, I always had in the back of my mind that I've got this home. I'm not going to disappoint my parents. I'm not going to disappoint my family. And ultimately, I have an out. So my childhood was very fun getting into trouble in a good way. Being, you know, I was very outdoorsy. You spend lots of time outside the house and just enjoy myself. Really, I have really positive memories.
1: And, and you're a Tottenham um, Hotspur fan these days. So, uh, at what, days. what point did that that become uh, part of the, the scene?
2: So this is like in the eighties, right? So I grew up from as so northwest London and Chalky, which is in Wembley. So I grew up in the shadow of Wembley Stadium when matches would go on. I would hear the goal before we'd see it on TV. You know the, the FA Cup final we're watching on TV and you hear the crowd roar in, through our balcony in like 10 seconds later, the goal would be on TV. But I remember you know watching Tottenham in the FA Cup final, people like Glenn Hoddle, and then later on, people like Gascoigne. The thing for me, I've always I've always been, a, my earliest memory of watching football is just seeing them playing. So, so
1: younger football fans, um, that this is ancient history at this point, but we'll indulge
2: you. Yeah, it is. But I, I saw this team at the time. There weren't very many teams in the UK that played the style of football Tottenham played. I think that was the key thing for me. I could have supported any team. Liverpool were the, were the big team in the country. Man U weren't even big yet. Arsenal were nothing. They were, I don't know, in Woolwich or something, so let's not even talk about them. But Tottenham were the team playing the brand of football that attracted me, and it was love at first sight. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, th- that's obviously continued on and is uh, um, a p- part of your, your identity now.
2: Unfortunately. Oh, so, yeah, I'm a season ticket holder. I was I was on Facebook actually talking to someone who's also a Tottenham fan, but arguing with them, and I think on that conversation I realised that I've spent about thirty thousand pounds in season ticket fees over the years now. That's how much.
1: Many- and, and and there was a, a fascinating post you made uh, in response to uh, one of the other clubs' people saying that Tottenham hadn't won many trophies, and and your your response. Uh, do you want to briefly summarise? Uh, what other measures are important?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is something that goes on and on in football. People are, I think, slightly confused about reality sometimes. So let me break it up, especially for Arsenal fans. Okay, Look, we, Tottenham have invested in the club in a way that is probably unfathomable to most people. Man City can come in and they have billionaires that will buy a stadium that's pre-built and fill the club with players in the hope, in in the, in the gamble of winning trophies. Many teams have tried that. You look at Everton now. Everton are about uh, fighting relegation. Their Chinese owners spent $750 million just to be relegated. They have no stadium, no no, tang- no tangible asset of value that's retained. The players that they bought, they paid $50 million for some. They have to sell them for 30 In the past, other clubs like Leeds have gone bankrupt <laughs> from trying to win titles by buying them. Tottenham, on the other hand, haven't won any titles. We won one trophy in the last... 18 years or so which is terrible and as a top
1: what was that that one trophy it was the Carling
2: cup an amazing cup for anyone who doesn't know possibly one of the best cups outside of the top cups but a cup okay but they, they, you know we could have done the opposite like we've been so close or soft and I felt that we could just need spend a little bit more on the on the flip side this is where Tottenham fans often disagree. the chairman he should be a property. He should be on this podcast because he's keen on property and real estate. In the meantime, without winning any trophies, he's turned Tottenham into a club that has physical assets worth over three billion. Right. Wow. So that's that's again, you know, when the, the tangible physical. It, it's
1: a well-run business operation, uh, as profit. opposed to uh, a one-season wonder, or even a liability. Because I think one of the like.
2: Manchester, I'll give you my example as well goes Chelsea. So Chelsea's owner came in and they've won loads of trophies. I think they've effectively won a trophy for every year he was in charge. The problem is Chelsea was sponsored by money laundered from Russian civilians and funded by the Russian state. So it's great that they have all these trophies, but I'd much prefer the fact that we haven't been associated with such types of people. We're a well-run club, family-run, you know really great environment to be in trophies is the icing on the cake but we have probably the best cake in football <laughs> but I would say the antithesis of that argument I have Garth Crooks who used to play for Tottenham said that at the same time Tottenham is a bit like um, a, a school with all the best facilities and all the best training and teaching but with poor results in the exams
1: <laughs> well, ho- hopefully that will change for you at some point in the near future. But, um, yeah, but
2: if you have the facilities eventually, the results uh, and the exam results will catch up. That's and
1: great. then, uh, if you if you move forward a little bit um, uh, into your secondary school days, um, what, what was uh, what was the ambition? What were you into? Um, so, engineering was was entering your consciousness. Um, were you aware of property other than um, the the social housing aspect of the estate?
2: No. So, so you answer your last question first. Like, <laughs> property for me isn't something that became realistic until probably about twenty fifteen. To be honest, the at that point I was like in my late twenties. But the my secondary school days, I I went to secondary school just down the road. I still live. So I mentioned I grew up in Wembley. I still live. I live three stops away now. On the metropolitan line so i haven't gone very far in life you know my, my kids were born in the same hospital that my sisters were born in but that school that i went to down the road was it was you know state school i'm catholic so i've always gone to catholic schools it was a state a catholic school in the local community I, at school i always enjoyed science i was i was pretty academic in school back to my earlier point i come from a family that is very academic and there was no other option. My mom and my my grandmother from the day that I was born told me, not asked, not told me that I was going to be a doctor. And uh, that was her nickname for me until the day she died. And even now at this stage in my life, God bless the soul, she'd see me every day and day. She'd say, okay, so when are you going to be a doctor? Like, are you, are you still going to go? <laughs> to the point where when I left university and I wanted to do engineering, I was so- It's never too late, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was so afraid of disappointing her and not becoming a doctor. But I studied engineering, but I studied biomedical engineering. Just so I could tell her that that option was still there, because there's a bit of medicalness to this, even though I knew I was never going to be a doctor or even an engineer. But in school, I always enjoyed science, science and maths. And I was also like sports a lot. I used to run, skip, hop, football. If there was a sport, I wanted to get involved.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and then so you, you headed off to university. Um, what what was university life like, and um, how how were your ambitions starting to form? Yeah, I think
2: university was probably the the, the kind of first time in my life when I started to realise what the real world was like. I went to, as I say, I went to a state school, and when I went to uni, I then start to engage with lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds. I actually met. Being Ghanaian, but being British growing up here, I didn't have, I had lots of friends from school, but it was really multicultural and mixed. When I went to uni, I ended up meeting lots of people who were West African, which is quite funny. I hadn't, I didn't, other than family and friends, I didn't know many West Africans. So in uni, I I met lots of West African people. Now, like my closest friendship group is made up mainly of uni friends who are West African from different Mm -hmm. West African countries. Other than like my sort of school friends. So at uni, I learned a lot about the world. I learned that actually, you know, there were these people who were Nigerian. And for me anyway, it was a real dy- uh, kind of dynamic change. I think when you grow up and you are in a UK, you are always a, as you're black, you're always a minority. So you, that shapes you. Then I met these people who grew up in an environment where they were not a minority. And that shaped them differently. And I think that was the real learning point for me. Because even though I'd already, growing up on account, I felt like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to escape this environment, move on. But nevertheless, I still had certain mental limitations. And then you meet people who don't have those limitations, because they've never thought that, oh, I can't do something for this reason. You know, so that was really, a, and also I met some Nigerians who were just filthy rich. <laughs> like, I'd, I'd never come. I'd I'd ne- I grew up in Canada. I whenever I'd come across people who had a fair bit of money, it was because they maybe owned a business or something. School friends whose parents were business owners, they had a bit of wealth here or there, and often they were white or European. Then I went to uni and I met Nigerians who were filthy rich compared to these Europeans I knew, and I was just shocked. So you know they take me like we'd go to the best clubs in Manchester and pop champagne at eighteen. I was like, wow.
1: And and so uh, you you think that identity is uh, a key part of um, your ambition?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. In in that in that situation, one of the things that I realized actually is that there is no limit here, like the ambition is limitless. You know, I, there was one of my friends, his dad owned the kind of biggest national newspaper in Nigeria. And I was like, that's, that's Rupert Murdoch level. And you know, and also I, well, I realized that the world is bigger than, I grew up in Northwest London, 0208 postcode. I, 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 I rarely left London. I rarely went south of the river, rarely left my postcode, you know? And then I went to Union Manchester for, for that reason. I was like, actually, I need to escape this bubble let me figure out what's the furthest I can go and not be too far, though, and I went to Manchester. And then I'm like, actually, look, there's this, even even in West Africa, I know Ghana, I know Accra, I know a city. There's Nigeria, which is, uh, is so much bigger than Ghana, even. Then there's the continent, then there's the world, and that just opened
1: me up to all endless possibilities, I think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and then, um, so you, you uh, left uni, went into banking. Um, much. Th- 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 and that there's, a, there's a, a crisis what, what sort of uh, products were you uh, working on initially so that is, when I left uni uh, to be honest my main objective was to figure out how to get back to uni because
2: I didn't want to go to work anytime soon um, I would loved my student life going out partying studying sometimes and doing the bare minimum while discovering the world I didn't do lots of traveling, I just wanted to carry that on. But my mum said no, my mum said basically she wasn't going to sponsor my lifestyle. If I wanted to keep on studying and have to sponsor my own lifestyle, which then meant obviously it was unsustainable, and I ended up getting a job. Um, The first job I got was really kind of a a, uh, placement, and just that was my introduction to banking. But the first proper job that I got was really working um, in, in uh, working for a company called Goldman Sachs. At the time, I was really lucky because there was a new regulation that was coming in called MIFID. Markets and Financial Instruments Directive One, And they were setting up a project and they needed some analysts to do that. So they were looking for a bunch of grads that were sharp and ready to kind of go. So that was great. And I ended up getting in there, working with the bank on repapering success- with new terms of business and terms of reference, covering off the updated terms in the directive. It was really, it was a really technical role. And it's actually, when I had my interview with the kind of director in charge, he asked me, You know, you studied biomedical engineering. Why, what do you want to do in banking? And hopefully, I, I guess he liked my answer because he gave me the job. But I think to your earlier point at the start, I said to him that, you know, I have lots of transferable skills that can be applied to many different things. But more importantly, I have an innate and acute desire to learn. So I will learn all of this stuff, pick it up, and I will then apply my analytical skills that I've gained as an engineer. And that's what I did. So MIFID was the first one that worked well. I I, I was on a grad rotation, so I did different roles. MIFID, um, I worked, Trade support was the last role that I did before I left that program, but I did method, operational, risk, op risk, um, kind onboarding, and KYC, so a number of different roles within the operational space, and then trade support.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and this is, I'm assuming this is back in, uh, the, in London, working in the city, um, and yeah. um, what, what was it like uh, going off to work professionally for the first time? Painful. Very painful. One of the things that I really but big but, but change from you know being being away at university. Um, yeah, like the, I think the responsibility seven, 7 a.m. starting.
2: You know exactly the responsibility of actually having to get in at uni. I have lectures. Maybe I go, maybe I don't, depending on how the night was before. <laughs> but uh, at yeah, work, you have to be there seven o'clock. So that was very painful. I think one of the things that I learned. Um, right at the start so I was doing this kind of training program with HSBC actually and I met some people there which this is what opened my eyes yeah this was the point I wanted to make so I I met a couple of people back to the when I went to uni opened my eyes and I saw these different things and then I come back to London and I'm from London grew up here my whole life I'm trying to get into investment banking really is where I decided I wanted to go And I probably the first people who hired me was HSBC as part of their grad program, accepted that. And I was on a rotation working on the retail side. And the last role I did before I quit that role was working as a business support analyst. So I was helping people who wanted to open business accounts. I had this couple, their name escapes me, which is really bad because I normally have a good memory. This might be 25 years ago, but they came in and they wanted to open an account. Um, the bit that really stood out to me is that these two—they were, they were going into consulting. They were setting up businesses as consultants. They had jobs in place. Both of them came from one. What well, sorry? Both of them came from New Zealand, and they came here and they were getting into the space almost automatically, and I was shocked. As someone who grew up like eight miles away from the square mile, there was no. I felt like there was no accessibility for me to get into that space. But that was, you know, so in that role, the brief time I did it, I learned a lot. One of the main things that I learned is about building relationships. Now, I would always, whoever it was, I'd build relationships with different people. Those two in particular I build relationships with and I helped them with many things. And then one day they actually said to me, hey, we know somebody, this lady who's looking for people for a new project, why don't you give her a call? I don't remember her name. Her name was Virginia. Virginia Fell, And she was a Kiwi as well. My, I, there's so many Kiwis in my story. And um, so Ginny, I met her. We spoke. She then introduced me to this guy, John May. I met John. We spoke. Met someone else. We spoke. And then I was working at Goldman Sachs. But the, the interesting thing about that story, so just like, I forget his, him, and their names, just like the couple, I didn't fill in a single application form let me take a step back. When I finished uni, I was filling in pages and reams of grad applications, taking um, assessments, uh, doing all sorts like two hours, crying just to get interviews into these jobs. Then I started working at, at, at um, HSBC, working on the relationships. They introduced me with Ginny. I have two interviews in a day at, at HS at, at Goldman Sachs on a Monday. I was flying to New York on the Tuesday. I had two interviews on a Monday, fill in no application forms, no nothing. By the end of that Tuesday, I have a job at Goldman Sachs. And that was purely based on the strength of relationships and Kiwis. I like Kiwis fruit.
1: But, relationships and Kiwis. What a great combination. Yeah. <laughs>
2: but you know, that that's a, from nowhere. I'm now working. The hours were crazy, the time was crazy, the pressure was crazy, but I loved every minute. I learned so much in that environment and that space. I do you know. When I remember one day, it was a it was, we were told on a Friday that we had to come in on a Saturday, and then we came in, did some analysis, data analysis, blah blah. On the Monday, layman's went bust. It turns out the analysis we had done was about the credit risk and exposure analysis to layman's, which was happening in the background while they are trying to figure out whether or not or how to save it, for it to go bankrupt on the Monday. So being you know being that directly involved in those type of moments was really eye opening
1: hmm mm-hmm. and and so it's uh, so a large global finance lots of things going on at a, a big level um go forward a, a few years you're coming into your consciousness that uh, property wealth creation um, and, and starting to do something beyond the um, it's not a nine-to-five job you're working in but the the day job yeah i
2: mean i'll take a step back so before um when i was working at goldman's i initially quit i think after two and a half years i quit because i set up a charity and through all of this i guess what i haven't talked about is all of the entrepreneurial stuff that i had been doing in parallel like when i was when we talk about secondary when i was in secondary school what i used to do was go shopping with my mom on a sunday and i'd buy a box of hubba baba and get her to pay for out my pocket money but this box of 20 Hubba Baba, I'd take it to school and I'd sell them as individuals and make my profit. That that, way- that's bubble gum for, for people not familiar with it. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, yeah, the bubble gum, nothing illicit. But um, I'd, so I'd, I'd sell Hubba Bubba, make my money. And through that, actually, back in the day, I used to buy these things called CDs, which don't even exist anymore. But I have probably upstairs about 350 CDs, all of which I bought before I was 18. And if you remember, CDs used to cost about 13, 14 pounds from HMV. I was doing the maths once. And I was like, so by the age of eighteen, I'd spent that amount on CDs, all from revenue I generated through my mm-hmm. own endeavours. So that was the number. Then when, when I was in when I was in uni, me and Michael, I mentioned a friend. That's a lot book.
1: of bubble gum. Yeah,
2: I I I escalated from bubble gum. In you know, in the summer, I'd have um, orange juice. Yeah, Orangina was quite popular back then. Um, and yeah in my locker it was basically like the tuck shop and I'd I'd get different things and people if they wanted sweets or whatever would come find me. but yeah but then when I went to uni one of my friends I mentioned he knew he he was connected so we we set up a club night Um, and I still believe that we were the first people to come up with a name but there was a night we did called Vodball. I used to go out one of my favourite drinks was vodka and Red Bull and it was a drink you could buy But what we did was create a night that was called Vodball, And that was the only drink you could buy, basically. And because of that, because we had such, we were getting just those quantities of drinks. It was quite easy to manage. So we find a venue, get vodka, get Red Bull, sell it cheap, play good music and get smashed. And everybody loved it. But yeah, so that that was there. We did that for a bit until we lost lots of money because we weren't really focused on that. And then when I was, another I say, when I went to, when I started back, um, I was doing, I, I've always done lots of social work, low social enterprises across, but I was working with a charity called Clubs for Young People. And what, we, what I wanted to do was take people who came from similar background to myself and give them activities to do outside of school hours. Because I had a theory that for people like me who were growing up in the environment I was in, when you finish school and there's nothing to do, that's when you end up getting in a lot of trouble. And I have a passion for music. I, in my youth, I used to do a lot of music. So we set up a recording studio where we used to bring kids in and we'd make music, make some grime, make some hip hop, make beats, make raps, make songs. I managed to get funding up one point pre um, 2010. I think that's when the coalition government came in. We got funding from the government, we got funding from Apple, we got funding from MTV. And it was running well until we run out of funding. And as I say, so when when that was running well, I actually quit my day job at Goldman Sachs because I wanted to go full-time in that. that wow.
0: And
1: then uh, what 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 was next? So, so I, quit, I went back, I ended up,
2: one of my bosses, the one who had hired me originally actually eventually called me like four or five months later and he was like, are you bored yet? I was like, great timing, because I'm not bored, but I'm broke. Mm -hmm. And so we went back. I went back and ended up working at Goldman's again. I did that for a number of years before I then moved on to another bank called J.P. Morgan. Worked there for a good four or five years as well. It was there that I started to look at other stuff. so I started reading more about Kiyosaki and other things. I started looking at more. Now that I'm getting into my late 20s, I've been working for a few years. I can't just keep going out and blowing lots of money and going to South Beach, Miami and renting condos. So what we're going to do is look at how we can build something longer term. So I started looking at sorting out my finances as the first step. Then I started trying to, I bought my first house to live in. Then I started looking at actually property. Actually before that, I started investing in stocks and equities started building up my stocks and shares, ISA, investing a lot, all my disposables. And then once I had a pot there, I was actually, I wanted real assets. And we were at a certain point, I felt my analysis in the cycle. Turns out I was right. Where at some point I felt it would become too difficult to start. So I wanted to get into real assets for real estate so that I could get exposure to that equity. So that's what we
1: did. And then that built into the business and, and so there, there's a fascinating range of skills that you're, you're building up. So the analysis, the investment uh, side, you've also got uh, production skills from the um, uh, getting get involved in the charity and the music, and uh, you've, you've done fundraising, you've run a small business, you've worked in a global organisation, you've been involved in um, major, major sort of global e- economic events. At a, at a you know a low level, admittedly, but but in the middle of it, you're you've started things, you're um and you're you're starting to think about wealth uh, in a structured way, uh, perhaps for the first time.
2: Very much for the first time. Reading lots of different books, um, yeah, across that it's, it's compound knowledge, isn't it? So as you read, one of my one of my favourite books the, before Robert Kiyosaki, I read The Intelligent Investor. Um, Benjamin Graham Ben Graham was the mentor for Warren Buffett and a few other wealth builders but that that was a great book and I think that's where I started developing that investment IQ and that investment intelligence on a personal level I think one of the things someone else has said to me lots of people who maybe in the corporate world are very good at even investing on a corporate level or doing their jobs but then struggle to translate that on a personal level so that's where I tried to take what I was learning and the skills I was gaining professionally and apply that personally to help me drive success there.
1: And, and what, what do you think drove the discipline to uh, to apply that personally? Uh, like you're presumably still working fairly long days, quite intense um, intellectual demands and perhaps emotional demands uh, in the, the day job. Um, it, it, it takes a bit of effort um, and, and not an inconsiderable period of time to actually understand it enough to, to do anything with it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm working sort of 10, nine, 10 hours a day, and then I come home and I'd open my laptop and start doing desktop analysis on, on, on stocks and shares or property as the journey move forward. And. Even with so with, with my podcast, low money, I'd come home and be doing my website or whatever. But you're right that you need to have that determination and that drive just to persevere, because otherwise it's very easy to come home, put on Netflix, and just crash on the couch.
1: And what what um. I don't know if "mental tricks" is the uh, that the right term or not. But um, what what triggers did you use to make sure that you you didn't turn on the Netflix when you needed to do a little bit of your 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 homework? I suppose.
2: Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I think one of the biggest tricks is time boxing. So I've always been very not always, but one of the things I've learned that works really well is time boxing. And whenever I'm in that phase of time boxing, I'm a lot more successful than whatever I wanna do. So that- Do you wanna is-
1: explain that briefly for those not familiar with it? Yeah, so
2: this is where you literally allocate time to do certain things and you do nothing other than that. You, it's single tasking. You do that single task for the time. So
1: so, so working on your website, doing the analysis of a, a particular category of stocks, for example, or- Exactly. So like, it doesn't mean that you or don't- Or want- a, a property deal. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that you
2: don't watch Netflix at all in the evening, but I'd come home from work and I know that actually I'm going to have dinner, spend an hour and a half doing X, and then I'm free. And until I've done that time box exercise, nothing else happens and you just have to be strict with yourself. But it's all like like I say, Netflix at the end is always a positive, a positive thing. But the, the mistake people make is they will say, okay, let me watch some Netflix and then I'm going to do some desktop analysis on property because that's never going to happen. So. so
1: so um we've been trying to get you on the the podcast for, for quite a while crazy um and christine janoway had a, a question that i've got to before we move on to the property phase of your journey um you're you're one of the coolest dressed uh, men that we're, we're, we've ever 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 seen uh t- tell us a bit about that and then we can get started on the property side
2: <laughs> firstly thank you christine i love Christine.
1: Not but, just Christine, i I agree. I
2: agree. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> thank you very much. I think I mean, I'm, I I would take that compliment. I don't know what to say. I would say this one one of the things um, that I've always felt for me is that when you go into a room, let me let me afraid, this is an advice advice that somebody gave me early on in my career, and they said, look at people who you want to be like and then emulate them this is like when I was maybe 16, 17. says, so look, no, sorry. This is this is when I started at Goldman's and somebody said to me, look for someone in the company that, wants, that you want to be like and then follow their path. I mean, to be fair, I looked in the company and there weren't many people that I wanted to be like. But one thing I did notice is that all the people who were senior in the company always dressed well. And I said, actually, the way the way you present yourself it's, it's double-edged, like how you present yourself says a lot about you, but so people will read into that. So I think from that point, I've always felt that presentation matters. And yeah, that, that's all. I just thought presentation matters. I don't necessarily know if I have a particular style or if it's good, or even if, it's,
1: but it matters, it
2: definitely matters. And so people will notice.
1: Very good. Well, um, Christine, I, I asked the question. Uh, so, uh, property tell us about your um your first foray into property and and um what what your key learnings have
2: been. yeah i mean i think (laughs) property has been an interesting journey for me i haven't been in that long i would say i bought my first investment in sort of 2015 what i did though is then like my property journey is that i buy property with my own cash that i then develop we finance renovate and hold and that's the strategy it's sort of personal wealth building for my own portfolio i don't do jv's i don't take outside investment other than from the bank it's very self-sustaining and sustainable is what i want to build my first one after building climbing that tree so starting building an nicer investing that growing that adding to it divesting it and then actually i was like i, I want to get into property so divest that turn that into a deposit and use that deposit to buy the first house. Um, the first one that I bought, my, my first thing that I do is I spent ages doing the analysis. And so I, I wrote a business plan, which is like 40 pages. I still read it now and then just to remind me of how off course I am. But if anything, business plan is good for that. But I had a very specific strategy in that I wanted to invest. I wanted to self-manage, even though I have no time, not sure why because I wanted to learn, to be honest. I, the main reason I wanted to self-manage is because I felt that that was the quickest learning curve. So I could, in a short space, learn as much about everything as possible, and then that would position me. But I wanted to self-manage. I was doing all my own sourcing, um, project managing the development, um, and then, yeah, all while doing everything else. But the first one that I did was a really fortunate one, I guess, because I managed to find one locally whereby the property was already being used for the strategy I wanted to use it for, which is HMO. So lots of stuff was already in place. Um, the rules weren't as stringent as they are now, obviously, but I managed to pick that property up. I think I paid something like 340 for that one. Yeah, so that we bought, paid, I did very little on that first one in terms of work to the property, because again, it was being used. It wasn't high end or high spec, managed to get it rented out and it was making a good bit of profit The in london you know property values are high that one is the cheapest one i've ever bought actually the average price i paid like 500 so the yield on them is relatively low compared to other parts of the country you're talking maybe five percent six percent gross if you're lucky and that brings you down to something like three percent net um so, the profit margins were tight, but the good benefit of London as a capital appreciation broadly outperforms most of the rest of the country. Um, not always, but obviously, and, and in different parts of London, because markets driven by different factors. But that property, we managed to keep hold of um, for a really long time, actually. And then the, the challenge, so we, things go in cycles, and you have, I always had like a five, seven year cycle, and now it's 2000. So yes, seven years, six years into it, or five, six years into that particular house, one of the things that we had to do was with HMOs, they have a lot of wear and tear. So we had to look at renovating and redoing the work. And at the start, we'd done it to a relatively low level just to get it on the market. On then when we were looking at it again, five years later, having done other projects in the meantime and having other stock in the portfolio, actually, I decided to sell that property because the cost of bringing it up to the standard of even some of our own properties was so high i invest very locally so all my properties are within two miles radius of where i live so i can drive to them within 20 minutes and i like i compete with myself in that i have properties that are either on the same street or on parallel streets D- depending what's happening with the traffic i would uh, add. yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah that oh, like that one actually when I was, we was looking at it we have a parallel one on a parallel street one on the same street to bring it up to just those standards would have been heavy capital outlay and would that return on that investment have been enough so we decided to sell that but one of when I went in my business plan back to my when I read that one of the things that i said in my original business plan is to never sell so when I was considering it's just interesting how things evolve when I was considering this this and I was reading the business plan and I say how far I've deviated actually it's like okay I said I was never going to sell but the market's changed things have changed conditions have changed actually best thing to do in this scenario is to sell and I think in business it's always important it's important when, to have,
1: when the when the facts change you're allowed to change your mind I think it's important <laughs> to have fixed
2: goals and targets because otherwise you don't know what you're aiming for but when the facts change you need to change your goals and targets accordingly as well mm-hmm
1: and and so uh what what did you exit at and uh if if you're happy talking through the the net on that 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 property what what was what did it look like and uh what options did that give you
2: yeah so that one so that my that property i bought it and i sold it as it is actually um my strategy generally is i buy three-bed semis and i turn them into eight-bed hmos so one of the options was to do what we. Template wise, do which is add the rear extension and the loft conversion to add the extra rooms. So that, that that's what I mean by actually to do that would have cost more. I ended up I paid 340 for it. We sold it for 480. Yeah, exactly. 480 um over that period, obviously, plus any that's that's the capital gains, plus any income that's that's coming from that period at the time. But I would have probably had to spend somewhere between 50 and 60 to bring it up possibly up to 100 depending on the spec that was mm-hmm. spent which would have meant that I'm now spending 340 and then the uplift wouldn't have been as much and in the meantime that extra 100k I wouldn't have got the return on that capital employee wouldn't have been that high so conversely take out 140 odd and actually what we did with that capital was to so the, going back so then this was this was maybe two three years ago one of the things in my business plan, okay I had it, was I had forecast the interest rates would start to go up. I hadn't forecast they go up as early as they did, but I forecast they start to go up. So, bearing that in mind, I was already anticipating that we're going to a different as part of the interest rate cycle where I, I was anticipating something like 5%, going from 1% being the average to 5% being the average, right? That's five times. <laughs> That's 500% for people who don't get it. It's not like just, you know, five points. It's 500. So one of the things, the the thing that we did with that cash is pay down debt. At the peak, we were sitting on about...
1: It's really interesting how... You've, you've um, factored interest rate risk into your business model, but most banks uh, barely seem to have acknowledged it, <laughs> that, but, which that, is uh, really the, the, the core of the, the current banking crisis.
2: I said this to Adam on, a, on one of his posts. I think the challenge for banks is that they probably did factor it into their risk models and the risk teams factored it in. The business didn't. And when the risk would have challenged the business, the business would have said... Hey.
1: And, and, and the executive uh, compensation tends to be linked to current profits as opposed exactly. to uh, future risk. But
2: but when, when the risk team would have highlighted this, the business would have said, hey, look at what the chairman of the Fed is saying. This is not a major risk. This is transitory. It's only going to be here for a short time. Don't worry. We're fine. This is okay. And so I think... The this, this is always the dichotomy within banks. Now you have different teams that are almost competing with each other, which isn't a bad thing. But then you have one team looking at one set of risk factors and indicators and another team looking at a different set of risk factors and indicators. And that's where you get the problem. But I, for me, I the, the risk, interest rate risk, the challenge is that I didn't agree with the Bank of England when they said that it was transitory, when they said it was temporary, right? But if I was trying to get a mortgage and the mortgage lender was saying, I'll say, no, don't worry. The Bank of England said that it's transitory. I'm okay, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. I'm just quoting what the BOE have said. And that's, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's really where the chat thing went wrong from an interest rate risk perspective for banks, the regulator. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh, and back back to uh, the expanding property empire. Um, you, uh, you got one under your belt. Uh, you weren't put off by it, strangely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that, that like the next year I bought two in one day
2: which was fun so you know going from not being in property having this to prop setting up the property business on top of everything else um managing that and then spending something like a million on property in one day was a bit of a crazy thing to do to be honest the main reason though is if you remember now everybody knows there's this three percent additional stamp duty that we would have to pay i bought this on the day both of them on the day before that came in Mm -hmm. so i think it was the 31st of march 2016 and yeah so then i went from one that didn't put me off to two on the same day that was gonna basically rip my life apart but that was an interesting and and actually at that at that point i quit my career for the second time i was working at jp morgan at the time as these two projects were going, I quit work to focus full time on property, and I spent probably about six to seven months doing that. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And and um, the the thinking behind going full time, what what was the I think it was a, a number of things. Maybe at the, at the time, I definitely wanted to
2: try something different. My so I have two children. My son was then probably about two. And my daughter was had just been born and so and i was working at jp morgan working really long hours my daughter was born to be honest i hardly i hardly saw her in the first few weeks first couple of months so it was just me working and her sleeping whenever i was at home and one of the that was definitely one of the drivers i wanted to get back more time or more control over my time which was a a fallacy in itself because When you're managing two property projects you have no time and i was spending most of my time doing stuff like driving to the builders warehouse to buy stuff for builders or on the phone trying to sort stuff out with planning departments or whatever it was just a lot it was it was really full-on um i enjoyed definitely enjoyed parts of it but there were other elements that i realized that this wasn't a career for me Mm -hmm.
1: Mm mm-hmm And, and so um, that, that realization, uh, you, you went back into banking, exactly. uh, but the Slow Money Club was uh, w- was developing and, and your network was expanding. Exactly that. So Slow Money was definitely developing. At this point now, we started to, divest,
2: to diversify what we we're doing, even with Slow Money. I started making more, doing events as well as the, the content, the website, the podcast. We started doing events. And we held a number of events in Canary Wharf um, in a really amazing venue, I think, at least with great views of the city. I mean, I do the events just to be able to get those views in, to be honest. But yeah, we we did a number of property related events. We've had Adam and Rod Turner at um, an event that we did just last year post-pandemic. That was something that was supposed to happen, I think, on the day that lockdown happened. Originally, it was planned for the day of lockdown, but then so that got cancelled. And then we ended up doing it two years later, which was interesting, looking at how things have changed in terms of property investing over the pandemic. But yeah, so Slow Money is still developing. Um, and it's still, you know, we're, we're looking at other forms of training that we can do um, and more events coming. But that's really kind of the social community angle where we give back and able to support people's learning with free, it's free content, but it's also high quality content.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and what would be um, that the three or four key principles that you've uh, established now having wrote, wrote a thesis about it um, gone and implemented it uh, largely, um, gone full- time, gone back from uh, back into a, a day job uh, while continuing to invest? What, what, what would be the, the key principles that you've uh, established at this point? Yeah, which right. is a very different view than someone uh, who hasn't done it yet. Exactly. Like I've been fortunate in, that in
2: banking, especially in recent years. Most of what I've done has been in strategy, so I work in strategy. And I think the the key thing for me is have a strategy. Strategy is an overused word. What does strategy mean? The definition of strategy is a long term plan to achieve specific goals. So I think you always need a plan for the long term. And it's on that that you base everything else. So I had this plan, this this strategy that I wanted to build a portfolio that, in the short term, would bring income while my wife was on maternity, etc. In the long term, would bring capital appreciation that could be realised. So then I doubled back to do that. How you? What's the best way to achieve that? That's like, I didn't I didn't start out actually saying, oh, I want to do property. I started out try and identify a strategy which led me to property. And then within property, there are various tactics you can use, et cetera. So first point is have a strategy. Second point is network. I think especially early on in my my property journey, I'm I'm very much analytical and I can be in a box with myself and lots of data and analysis. What I wish I'd done more of in in the beginning was go out more network with people, especially the right people, not all networking is equal, but networking with the right people to build that knowledge base quicker. Yeah, I think people will often think, oh, if I go to a network event and I speak to whoever I speak to is great, but you need to be targeted, you need to be specific, you need to identify who are the people that you want to network with, and then strategically approach them in order to develop those relationships, and, and they can help you build the knowledge. And
1: presumably that's easier if you've got your strategy clear in your head. Uh... Exactly. So yeah, so get the strategy right, network. The
2: The third point is that people often look at how much profit they can make when they're doing deals. So, you know, people are always looking at return on investment. The thing that I learned early on is, it's not about return on investment, it's return of investment. So from the very beginning, I'm not super rich, I have a finite pot of money and I'm not looking for external funding. So I always need to make sure that I get return of my investment first. Once that happens, everything else is a bonus. Basically, if I can invest in something, let's say property, if I can invest in property, refinance it, get my money back out, that's the return of my capital and I'm good to go. Even if that property falls apart, I'm still good to go because I've got my capital back. Lots of people might think, "Oh, I'm getting a return on my investment," but I'm all my money stuck in the deal still. But actually, you don't. The, one of the other point, there's no return from equity. If you have equity in a property, you're not getting any. You're not getting more rent because you have 50% LTV versus 20% versus 20%. The equity has no link to the return you're getting from that investment. So return, I try to get my money back out as soon as possible, and then we play the rest and see how that goes. So yeah, I think that that's the third point. Um, What would the fourth point be? I think, yeah, we we spoke about it earlier. I think my fourth point is definitely the fact that you have to constantly reassess, constantly reassess continuous improvement. So have a strategy at the start, but that shouldn't be fixed. That strategy needs to be constantly evolving as the information changes. As, as the
1: world changes, as the market changes, as the finance changes, as whatever changes. Exactly. As your own circumstances change. Exactly. You have children. You, 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 you have a job, you don't have a job. You get a higher paid job, you get a lower paid job. Uh, you, you have a partner, you don't have a partner. All of these things change uh, where you're at. Exactly. Pandemics happen when in your business
2: plan. You know, um, wars happen in Ukraine energy prices change, two million Eastern Europeans move back home. All of this stuff happens and it's unplanned. And I I remember my first sort of couple few years, something like 60 to 80% of my tenants were Eastern European. At this point, as we sit here today, I think I have one tenant, Who's Eastern European? Out of about thirty-five, and I mean, he's been in this country for more than thirty-five years, so he probably doesn't even count because he can't count. Mm-hmm. His home. So that's a massive change in terms of the clientele that I was originally looking at for these HMOs. Even if I look at HMOs as a business model originally, you know, HMOs—the one of the main, from strategy perspective, going back to strategy, I chose HMOs because being in London, low yields. When you buy property in London, the amount you can borrow is a function of how much rent you make along with other things like the pay rate but the and a a stress test rate but that function dictates how much money you get so assuming that the other two the pay rate and the stress test rate are the same the only thing that you really have control about is the only thing that you really have control over is the um the first point now hmos allow you to control the rent more because you get more income so if you look at that just as an equation, you're able to increase A, B and C stay the same. That means actually you're able to borrow more. So from HMO perspective, especially in London where capital is, that meant I could go up to a higher LTV. Flip that now to where we are. And as I said, when I sold that property, the goal was to pay down the debt, reduce the LTV. So I'm going the opposite way now, actually, where when I look at the portfolio, the interest rate risk and the fact that We've got X amount of million in debt and every quarter of a percentage point increase equals X amount more in interest payments. I'm thinking I need to, well, originally I didn't want to sell, but actually I need to reduce the debt or bring it to a position where the debt leverage ratio is not so high. Yeah, it's all about continuous learning and improvement and development. That's, I think that's probably the, the one thing that I would want anyone listening to take away from this from this conversation is that we're all still learning.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, what are your hopes for uh, Tottenham Hotspur uh, in the coming year? Well, in the coming weeks, we've got eight matches. We need to finish fourth. That's, like, keeping me awake.
2: So I'm lending my support also to Man City because Arsenal are top of the Premier League and they cannot win. So I'm lending some of my support to Man City to push them over the line, please. And in the meantime, Tottenham can finish fourth, please. hmm
1: and, and what um, for, for people who are not football fans, um, what, what's it about um, hoping other teams would lose versus your own winning?
2: Yeah, because particularly, so Arsenal are probably the only team that I ever hope lose. That's because Arsenal are just interlopers in this world. They shouldn't even be in North London because they came from South London, invaded our territory, and then just... They've been terrible neighbours. You know, it's like you buy a property, your family have lived there your whole life, and then some really bad neighbours come in and they make lots of noise. They do some terrible renovations. And yeah, they're just terrible to have around. But you always want them <laughs> to lose. That's just Arsenal. <laughs> yeah.
1: Very good. Well, um, That the uh, the best way to get hold of uh, him is slowmoneyclub.com. So that's um, slowmoneyclub.com. Absolute pleasure having you on. We'll we'll get you back on for uh, a little bit more of a a detailed analysis on some of the deals, Uh, but much appreciated. I'm Will Mallard. This is My Property World. Thanks again.
0: Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together, whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading, or getting involved in a deal in another way.